Good morning, beautiful people. My name is Danielle Nicholson. I am honored to serve as chair of the pastoral search team here at Christ Central. And today's scripture is coming from Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 19. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What, did you then, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Blessed, I'm sorry. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's house. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all of the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, good morning, Christ Central Church. Uh, it is a privilege and a delight to be with you again, and especially on this reunion Sunday, seeing my friends over here. My time with Christ Central, even before I visited, goes back to before Christ Central was Christ Central, when Howard and Kelly were still in Baltimore at Forest Park, and I was still in seminary, and they said, we leaving. We leaving Baltimore and going to go join this dude named Giorgio and plant a church. And in many respects, what happened here became the model for uh, for us when we planted City of Hope Church in 2007. And so um, I want to, you know, I want to share with you from the passage that was just read into your hearing on this subject. I want to talk about true victory this morning, true, a true victory. Let me pray and then we'll dive in, all right? Let's pray. We thank you for your word that is living, active, and sharp, that pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And we all in this place are naked and exposed to your eyes, the one to whom we must all give account. 
And this is good news, Lord, because this means you know exactly what we stand in need of. And so would you be pleased, Lord, to take these efforts of mine, weak and unworthy though they may be, and use them to bless your people. Meet us where we are and give us what we need. And we would be people who live more and more for the glory of Jesus Christ. Do it for us, for our good, and for his glory. We ask it in his name. Amen, amen, and amen. Well, several, uh, several months ago, back in October, um, right uh, before, well, really, when the, the incident that, uh, that sparked this war in, uh, in Israel and Gaza took place at attack by Hamas, uh, I, I, I texted my neighbor when I heard the news. I was out of town. My neighbor uh, is a rabbi, and, uh, and I texted her after hearing what had happened, and we kind of do that. It's, uh, it's, you know, when there's, a, when there's a, something that happens in this country that is that is around racial violence against uh, uh, black people. She'll text me and express uh, a sense of sympathy and prayer. And when that happens around uh, folks who are, are, are Jewish in background, I will text her and, uh, and say that I'm praying for her and see how she and her family are, are doing. And, and when uh, in her return text, she told me she appreciated my prayers and then she ended her text to me with these words. Um, she said, you know, it had been overwhelming for her. And then she said, la shalom, toward peace and justice for all people. And, you know, this is a reality that we have to deal with in, in life. Just a few uh, days after that, I was on a call with our mission to North America leaders and staff and the leader of our chaplain's ministry asked for prayer for the chaplains that were aboard uh, the strike carrier warships that were headed to the Gulf to deal with the situation there. Our English uh, as a second language ministry uh, director, she asked for, for prayer for Iranian ESL students who were afraid of being attacked even though they had left uh, Iran. Uh, the next week, I was at Wheaton College for a board meeting, and, uh, and it was brought up that we should be praying for the Palestinian and Arab students at Wheaton who are anxious and concerned, even though they were Christians at a Christian college. What, what hope is there for victory over evil in this world? Is there a difference between the way uh, that Jesus approaches uh, the need for victory over evil and the way that we are attempted to, uh, uh, attempted to approach it apart from him. We are smack, as you know, in the middle of another presidential election cycle where we are promised and are tempted to believe that the path to, to righteousness and flourishing over evil is dependent on who occupies the White House. What does Jesus have to say to us about all of this violence and trauma and inhumanity and evil? How do we mourn over evil and grieve while simultaneously believing that there will be victory over evil? What we'll see in this passage is that Jesus does have something to say. 
and that there is real hope for victory over evil, but it is not neat and it is not comfortable and, and it's not something we can just wrap up into a nice, tidy bow. See, the only way that the world knows how to pursue victory is through violence. And even, even if the victory that we're seeking is victory over evil, the only means that we have to attain that victory seems to be through violence. And Jesus' approach to victory is scandalous. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas says the kingdom that Jesus brings is one of gentleness and humility that cannot help but reveal the violence of the world. We will not, therefore, he said, be surprised then, after Jesus has plainly said who he is and what he has come to do, that everything that he says and does invites controversy and resistance. I want to look at these 19 verses in, in two sections. I want to talk about victory and scandal and victory and suffering. Victory and scandal and victory and suffering. So let's situate ourselves in the Gospel of Matthew, shall we? As we begin to look at the scandal of victory from verses 1 to 6, Matthew structures his Gospel this way. The first four chapters are basically his introduction to the book. And then Matthew has five major discourses that go from chapter 5 to chapter 25. And the conclusion of his book is chapters 26 to 28. And for each of these five major discourses, Matthew makes a bridge statement. He says something like, after Jesus finished these sayings or these instructions or these parables, and then he goes on to say what he's about to say. And you'll find that statement at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter uh, 7 and verse number 28. And what do we see in verse 1 of our passage here in chapter 11? Then when Jesus had finished instructing the 12 disciples, he went up from there to teach and preach in their cities. Well, where are we? We are transitioning from a major discourse, the Sermon on Mission, where Jesus had predicted opp opposition for the 12 disciples to the section where we see that opposition explained implicitly and explicitly. You see, here's one aspect of the scandal of, of God's victory. Our, our passage, it follows on the heels of Jesus' message to the 12 disciples about the opposition that they'll face in their work as ambassadors of his kingdom. They're not to be surprised that, when that their good work is met with suspicion and rejection and persecution. If they are like Jesus, then others will react to them the way they reacted to him. If they are like Jesus, he says in, in chapter 10 and verse 25, if they call the master of the house Beelzebul, Jesus says, how much more will they malign the members of his household? And now he transitions to the implication of this for the members of his kingdom in verses 2 and 3. When John heard in prison, Matthew says, about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and he said to them, are you the one who is to come? Or should we be looking for another? Matthew doesn't tell us until chapter 14 and why, G, why John the Baptist is in prison, but John gets word that, what, that, that, that Jesus is preaching the good news of the kingdom of heaven and that Jesus is doing the miraculous. And you need to realize, you and I need to realize that John and Jesus actually had the same message. 
In chapter 3, in verse 1, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's victory over evil is coming. In chapter 4, in verse 17, after Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, Matthew says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So why John's question now? John is the one who had said to the people, listen, I baptize you with water for repentance, but there's one who's coming after me who's mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. When the mightier one comes, John said, he's bringing victory with him. He's going to purify this world of all that is against God's righteousness and justice. Why is John doubting? Can I say this to you this morning? I want us to understand. Do you understand? Doubt is not the same as unbelief. Uh, to, doubt is not the same as unbelief. To experience doubt, even as a believer in Jesus, to experience doubt, even as a Christian, is not a cause for shame. That's not the scandal. You know, sometimes Christians can think that if they have any doubt about any aspect of the Christian faith and they're unacceptable to God, and, and this is often an aspect of, of Christianity that non-Christians don't get either. I mean, it's inherently the case, right, that if you're not a Christian this morning, that you have doubts about this faith, right? You doubt the authenticity of the Bible. You doubt uh, the, the authenticity of Jesus and his resurrection, his claim to be the way and the truth and the life. You doubt the necessity of the salvation that he offers. You doubt the reality of heaven and hell. Whatever it is, we have a culture that exalts skepticism. Dr. Dallas Willard, who was a philosophy professor at USC, he said, he put it this way, he said, we, we have a culture that has for centuries now cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. And he was right to continue to say, if you're going to be a doubter, be sure to doubt your doubts as well as your beliefs. Here's the, here's the point I'm making when it comes to this issue of doubt. Doubt is not the barrier to faith for the person who doesn't believe in Jesus. Unbelief is the barrier to faith. It's a matter of the heart, not a matter of the intellect. For the Christian, the existence of doubt is not the same as unbelief. It is what arises in us when our experience does not match our expectations. John's doubt comes from his affliction. He's, his expectation of the Messiah's coming did not include his imprisonment. Jesus, this is not what victory is supposed to look like. Jesus says to John's disciples, go, go tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus is assuring John, you're not wrong about me. There was the expectation that God's promises to his people from the book of Isaiah would be fulfilled when the Messiah came. Jesus would fulfill the, 
the messianic promise to bring the year of the Lord's favor, the year of jubilee when wholeness and healing and salvation would come. And Jesus says, it's here because I'm here. All those expectations, all those promises are fulfilled in me. The problem that John the Baptist had was that when he was preaching, he said, the one who was coming after me is mightier than I. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. He'll be baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And John is asking Jesus, where's the fire? Where's the vengeance of God? Isaiah didn't just see that the blind, say that the blind would see and the deaf would hear and the poor would have good news to the, preach to them. He, he said in chapter 29 and verse 20 that the ruthless shall come to nothing and that the scoffers shall cease and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. Isaiah said in chapter 35 and verse 8 that a highway called the way of holiness shall be there and no unclean shall pass over it. Isaiah said that the servant of the Lord would proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of the vengeance of our God. Where is it, Jesus? Why, if you are the one to come, am I in prison? See it? Here, my expectation for how this thing is supposed to work is not lining up with the reality. I have an expectation of how the Lord's supposed to fulfill the victory that he promised. And Jesus' response to John is this gentle rebuke. Now, remember the context, right? Jesus has just gotten finished telling the 12 disciples what the cost of being a disciple looks like. And now there is a living, breathing example for them in John the Baptist. He is languishing in prison, a prison from which he will not be released, the place where he will be executed. Here's the scandal. The scandal of victory in Jesus is that God is still patient with sinners. The scandal is that is God's patience with people. And this means that his people will have to live in the paradox of a victory over evil that allows suffering and violence to continue. His people will have to live in the reality of a victory over evil that still allows violence to continue. That is why Jesus says in verse 6, blessed or happy is the one who's not offended by me. Jesus is describing this blessedness, this happiness with with a negative, the one who is not offended by me. This word that's translated as offended here doesn't simply mean taking offense at what Jesus says. He's describing unbelief. It's the word that our English word scandal comes from. You can hear it in the pronunciation of the Greek word skandalizo. It means to lead to ruin, to seduce to sin. Jesus is referencing himself as the one through whom this kind of offense, this kind of ruin comes. You see, Matthew, what Matthew is doing is setting us up. He's setting us up for what's going to happen later. We find this phrasing multiple times in the Gospel of Matthew. In chapter 13 and verse 57, the people in Jesus' hometown took offense at him. They were 
scandalizo at him. They were scandalized by him. And Matthew says in verse 58 of chapter 13 that Jesus did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. When we get to the end of the book and Jesus is at the Last Supper in the upper room celebrating the Passover with the 12 disciples, he says in chapter 26 and verse 31, you will all fall away because of me. It's the same phrasing that we find here in chapter 11, verse 6. You will all be scandalized because of me. And Peter says, even if everybody is scandalized, Because of you, Jesus, even if all of them fall away, I'll never be scandalized being associated with you. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. This very night, before the rooster crows, you'll deny three times that you know me. Peter says, right, even if I got to die with you, Jesus, I will not deny you. Other disciples said the same thing, and you know what happened, right? They were all scandalized by Jesus. When Jesus was being tried and condemned and crucified, they wanted nothing to do with him. Why? Here's the reminder. Here's the reminder. If you, if you don't remember anything else I say today, say, remember this. God's victory in Jesus comes through the cross. God's victory in Jesus comes through the cross. What that means is that it's an upside-down victory. What that means is that the victory of God in this world can look like defeat. God's triumph in the world can look like defeat to you and I. And Jesus sends John's disciples back with this corrective rebuke, and he turns to the crowd, and he begins to speak to them about John, and he he doesn't usually, Jesus doesn't usually describe people with superlatives. So when he does that, we ought to pay attention. He asks the crowd some questions in verse 7. Why would you go out to the wilderness? To see a reed being blown to and fro by the wind? Why did you go out to the wilderness to see a man dressed in soft clothing? Look, the people who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Why'd you go out to see a prophet? He says, yeah, yeah, and even more than a prophet, he's the one concerning whom is written, behold, I send my messenger before you. He will prepare your way before you. Truly, Jesus says, I tell you, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist among those born of women. He helps them understand who John is. John can't be disregarded by them just because he's in prison. They didn't get it. Jesus will say down to them in in verse 18, John came neither eating or drinking, and you say he has a demon, but John was the greatest, and he said, and more than a prophet because he has the unique role of heralding the, the Messiah of Israel. He wasn't great because of something inherent in John. He was great because he was the one that Malachi spoke of in Malachi 3 and 1. I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. He's Elijah who Malachi spoke of in Malachi 4 and 5. Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And yet, and yet, the point of the superlative is the contrast that Jesus makes. As great as John is, Jesus says, 
The one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. As great as he is, the one who is least in the heaven, in the, king, in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. And, and Jesus ain't talking about levels of membership, right? Like at your gym, you know, silver, gold, and platinum. That ain't what he's talking about. No, no, no. That's how the disciples think. <laughs> That's how the disciples think when you get to chapter 20 and, you know, John and James send their mama to Jesus to ask her if they could have positions of power when he comes into his glory, right? Jesus' statement here is intended to shock us. What Jesus is talking about is the great privilege, the immeasurable blessing of being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. The, the shock value is that any old member of the kingdom is greater than John. John was great, but he stood at the edge. He was the last of his kind standing at the edge of an old age and looking into the new, but he wasn't all the way in. His day was a day of desolation and exile and oppression. John's day was not a day of jubilee. The new age in Christ is a year of jubilee with the kingdom arriving in Jesus. And so, like that old American Express commercial says, membership has its privileges. Why is it a privilege to be citizens of Jesus' kingdom? Why is it better to be in his kingdom rather than out of it? Jesus continually puts himself at the center of God's kingdom, at the center of life. And the privilege of membership, y'all, is clarity. The person who is least in the kingdom of heaven doesn't have more faith than John the Baptist. They have more clarity clarity on where your primary identity lies because you've seen the unfolding of Jesus' ministry on your behalf in the kingdom of heaven. The citizens of, of the kingdom seek to draw their primary identity from their relationship with God, a relationship that they didn't establish, a relationship that they didn't maintain, that they cannot maintain, that, that they do not maintain, that can never be destroyed, and that is rooted in the deep, deep love of God. Why is this necessary? I thought we were talking about victory, pastor. We are. We see the evil in the we see the evil on the world stage. We see the evil in our communities and we wonder whether God is powerful enough to do anything about it. But you understand the first place that the victory of God is established is in our hearts. The first place that, the, the, that God comes to reign in victory is over us. Our grief and our devastation over war and gun violence and human trafficking and abuse and rampant poverty and systemic racism and corporate greed and the list goes on and on and on. Our grief over those things makes us doubt or even want to dismiss God. The only way to lean into those things with a sense of hope and even a, a supernatural peace is if we have experienced the victory of God personally. Have you experienced God conquering the evil of your heart? Before we worry about him conquering the evil, have you experienced 
him conquering the evil of your heart and your mind. Have you experienced God's victory in the cross of Jesus Christ for you? (laughs) We need this kind of clarity because Jesus immediately moves from this statement about the privilege of citizenship in his kingdom to talk about suffering again. Right after he says, the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John, he says in verse 12, for the day, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. And there are all kinds of interpretations and various ways of translating this verse. The essence of it is negative in force, however. Jesus is issuing a warning to his disciples to prepare for violence. The kind of violence that John is experiencing as Jesus is talking, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. The sense of that statement is most likely uh, the straining and the difficulty with which the kingdom of heaven advances in a violent world. I think the New Living Translation's rendering of verse 12 may be the most helpful one where the New Living Translation says, and from the time of John the, from the, time John the Baptist began preaching until now, The kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people are attacking it. The advancement of God's kingdom cannot be stopped, but it's no easy road because it's constantly under attack from violent people. The presence and the message of the kingdom often creates a violent response because it includes the necessity of having the Lord at the center of our existence and not ourselves. The kingdom comes with a promise of peace. But again, the only way that the world knows how to pursue peace is through violence. That's because peace, whether it's nations at war or families with internal strife or sports teams that can't get along, No matter what it is, peace for us means having things the way we want them. I mean, I live in Washington, D.C., y'all. Why is it that our politicians can't achieve any substantive work and policies in Washington, D.C.? It's in large part because the way that they they get life as as they want it in America is to beat the other party. to have the majority and be in control. That's not the way to peace. That's the way to strife. They choose violence. Amen. I love, let me quote from Stanley Howard one more time. He says, the kingdom comes through the peace brought by Jesus. The kingdom is not some ideal peace that requires the use of violence for its realization. We live life as if we are our own lords, our own creators. We respond violently to anyone who might challenge our presumption that we're in control of our existence. We do not want to be reminded that when it's all said and done, we will all be dead. 
The kingdom Jesus brings is one of gentleness and humility that cannot help but reveal the violence of this world. Yet the very gentleness of the kingdom affects a judgment on those who refuse to believe that the love that moves the sun and the stars is the same love that's found in this man. So if you're a citizen of the kingdom through faith in Jesus, it is necessary to have clarity about your unearned privilege because what Jesus says and does always invites controversy and resistance. Jesus has mostly a negative tone in our text because he's primarily talking about those who are offended by him. But let me offer you this word of encouragement and exhortation, especially if you find yourself among those who are struggling to believe, especially if you find yourself uh, among those offended by the things that Jesus says and does. Do not be content to dismiss your struggle. Don't be content to ignore what's offending you. God can handle it. Don't be, don't be content to ignore what's offending you. God can handle your, your, your struggle. That's part of the scandal of his love. The love that moves the sun and the stars in their course is the same love that is found in Jesus. That means his love is married to power. He don't dismiss you as quickly as you dismiss him. So don't ignore your struggle. Don't dismiss your struggle. Uh, let me encourage you to hear Jesus saying to you that you got to get off the throne. You don't call the shots in this deal. I can issue you that encouragement. Because Jesus issues it in verse 15. He says, he who has ears, let him hear. Anyone with ears should hear and listen to and understand what I'm saying. There's a tone of frustration in his voice. He asks another question in verse 16. To what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to the, their playmates. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. You know, children, children love to make up games, right? You know, they... Usually when children, uh, you know, I know y'all all have the perfect children, but usually when children make up games, somebody's in charge. Somebody's kind of running the, the show, you know, and, 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 and every once in a while, you know, the, that child will assign responsibilities in the game. You know, you, you play this and that. You do such and such. You, you do this. And every so often, the child who's been assigned a role in the playtime uh, production that he or she doesn't want rejects their assignment. I don't want to be so-and-so. I did that last time. I'm not playing anymore. And they get up and leave. Sometimes it leads to verbal and even physical conflict among the children. Jesus says to the crowds, this generation is like a group of young children playing together. Some of y'all want a make-believe wedding. I'll be the musician, you two be the bride and groom dancing. But somebody don't want to do a wedding. Okay, let's make a make-believe funeral. 
I'll do the funeral song and y'all will be the people who mourn. But somebody doesn't want to play the funeral either. And this is how it is with this generation, Jesus says. John and Jesus are the ones who are declaring what time it is. John came neither eating or drinking. John's diet was locusts and wild honey. John ate meagerly and an impoverished life, telling that generation it was time to mourn over their sin. Their king was coming and they weren't ready to receive him. People might have liked listening to him, but they thought he was a little off in the head. We're not going to play along with you and mourn, John. In fact, you might even have a demon. And then Jesus talks about himself. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. The day of Jubilee is here. I'm celebrating the arrival of the kingdom victory. And Jesus would go to people's homes and eat and drink and share the good news of God's love and grace for those who repent. And that generation said, we're not celebrating with you. We don't like the people you're hanging out with. You're a glutton and a drunkard. You're a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. We don't like what your victory looks like. One just that generation caught in the scare, snare and scandal of never being satisfied or pleased with Jesus. But he's right. Wisdom is justified by our deeds. That is, wisdom is proven right by its results. Jesus Christ is the victory of God and the wisdom of God, and dissatisfaction with him still exists because in the wisdom of God, God chose what's foolish in the eyes of the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world so that no one's able to boast in the presence of God, and that's not the victory we're expecting. What do we do? Let me wrap it up this way. What do we do? Three quick things. One, first, do not let your doubts be a barrier to belief. We'll be doing this right after I finish up. There'll be a confession of sin and an assurance of pardon. Sunday after Sunday when the church gathers, we confess and we hear the words of, of assurance and encouragement. Why does the church do that? Why do we do that? It's because week by week, day by day, moment by moment, we need to hear the words of assurance from God uh, to deal with the ever-lurking doubt that exists in our lives, especially when we see evil triumph. Second, we just came through the Advent season. And every year during Advent, I return to that wonderful book uh, by Fleming Rutledge uh, on Advent and and. And she has this one section called Looking into the Heart of Darkness where she says to to grasp the depth of the human predicament, one has to be willing to enter into the very worst. This is not the same thing, she said, as going to horror films, which are essentially entertainment. Entering into the very worst means giving serious consideration to the most hopeless situations. What hope is there for a ward full of people who will never sit up, walk, speak, feed themselves? Tourists, she said, go to the site of Auschwitz and take pictures. But who can really imagine the smells and sounds of the most depraved of all situations? She says the tourists can turn away in relief and go to lunch. She says Advent is not for the faint of heart. The, the, the reality that God God 
came from heaven into this world means that he grasped the depth of the human predicament. And to know the victory of God through faith in Jesus Christ is to know that we are not tourists who turn away from the ugliness and evil of the world and the injustice of the world and go to lunch. No, as his people, we look evil squarely in the face without fear and we labor as his peacemakers in the midst of the strife. Third and last, we keep coming right here to this table. Right here to this table. This table is the place where the scandalous love and victory of God are displayed in the crucifixion of Christ meets us again and again and again. It is a place where we receive clarity again about the privilege of being a citizen of his kingdom where in a deeply mysterious way he meets us and he satisfies us. It is where through faith we are satisfied with his victory and are assured of our victory in him. It's where he blesses us. He blesses us with the strength to dance to the tune he plays. Even if it comes with a heavy dose of rejection in this life from those who do not yet see the upside down nature of his victory. Let's pray. Well, we thank you. We thank you as the song says, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever, we thank you that in him we are assured to be a part of the victory that will overcome this world. We pray that you would strengthen your people to live into this day in and day out, even as we have to endure the paradox of life in a world where evil still continues. Do this for us by your power. Amen.